Welcome back to the Forgecast. My name is Neil Sögren. I'm Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. So, uh, last week we had Roy here, and that was so fun. And uh, we got more uh, guests coming up in the future. And we, But we won't spoil anything. But uh, we might have a guest planned for next week's episode, which will be very interesting. We'll, we will talk Absolutely. about something that we... I don't think any one of us has tried before, and that's going to be really fun. So... Keep your eyes and ears open for next week. So, what have you guys been up to, Alex? What have you been doing this week? Well, I've been uh, pestering the entire blacksmith community with the uh, Mank Tank Challenge, which has been really doing the rounds, and we've gotten some fairly big names involved. Uh, Roy himself is actually planning on doing a video. Basically, I wanted to highlight the fact that uh, in every blacksmith shop, there is a horrific manky disgusting water quench tank that we do not change as often as we should and they just get absolutely gross <laughs> and everyone knows everyone knows it's there everyone's got one but nobody talks about it and everyone always hides them in videos and things like this so i i decided to do a video calling people out and start a challenge where you have to show just how foul and filthy your mank tank is because i call it my absolutely mank tank epic. And then you've got to call out two other blacksmiths and then they have to show their mank tank and then call out two people. And it's actually, it's gone really, really viral amongst the blacksmithing community. And we actually just recently had Dan Moss do his and it was hilarious. It was really good. And, and I was watching Roy's live stream a couple of days ago and he's, he's planning to do one. So that's going to be good. And it's going to be interesting to see who Roy calls out. Yeah, it's been, yeah. it's been going massive, man. Like that's been, that's been epic. And for those who don't know what a mank tank is, it's basically the water barrel, right? Yeah, yeah. like I said, it's a water water quench tank. Yeah, slack tub. Um, they call it the the technical term I think is the slack tub. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But, uh, man- I always call mine my mank tank because it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty grody. I keep my yeah, oil no, been, clean and my water manky. It's been it's been a good kind of juxtaposition to the um, the blacksmith community videos that got started by um, Yamez at uh, Yamez. Island Metal Forge. Yeah, and he, it was designed you know, to sort of go off the back of that because that that was a very solemn, somber sort of thing. I mean, blacksmithing has genuinely saved a lot of people, and I know my personal journey with it has been fantastic. And we're just a group of people who have found solace in the flames of a forge. Um, and I wanted to kind of inject a little bit of the funny side of blacksmithing into that same spirit yeah and i think you've done really uh, a really good job of doing that actually it's been it's been pretty great to see and it's been bringing some great attention to some lesser known smiths on youtube as well because people are going they'll see someone like dan moss do the challenge and they go oh i want to follow this so they go check out the playlist and there's all these people that only have a handful of subscribers and now they're getting a lot more followers and it's it's great been doing really doing really good things for the community and i'm awesome Really happy to see where it's gone. You've also been working on a knife handle, I believe. Mm. Yes, the uh, Damascus blade that Sam sent me. If anyone follows my Instagram, um, Sam sent me very generously the first Damascus knife that he ever made, and um, it's stunning. But he sent it without a handle, and I had the terrifying task to actually 
not ruin his beautiful work and put <laughs> put a handle on it. Um, and I was um, I've, I've actually started that process and have been documenting it on uh, Instagram. It's got a black strap sassafras burl handle with um, solid brass fixtures on it, um, and it's it's coming up very nicely. It's also got a rosewood inlay down the the back and the front of the handle. Uh, just to add a little bit of contrast to the sassafras, which is quite a pale wood. And it's, yeah, it's it looks, come out quite nice. Awesome. And I also did a traditional Japanese shaving razor on a forging <clears> video <throat> recently. That was a commission that I did. So it's been a, it's been a pretty full-on week for me, really. But um, I don't know. Every time I've been working, Sam's been uh, telling me about the work he's been doing at the same time. It's been We've been <laughs> uh, working just as hard on opposite ends of the same country. So what have you been up to, Sam? Oh yeah, I mean this this week's been pretty full on for me as well. Uh, as you said, we've we've been kind of chatting about it off uh, on our own. Um, but yeah, so I, now that I'm back from uh, getting the flu and having my hand burned and all that kind of stuff, uh, I've been really cranking to get back in the forge and and get some work done. So uh, this week I did a one hour knife challenge. I kind of it kind of just happened accidentally. Uh, where I, I figured out that I only had an hour to forge in, and I wanted to make a video for my YouTube channel, so I made a, a knife in an hour. And uh, it came out alright, you know. I'd never seen a one-hour knife done that actually had a, a decent handle on it. Most of the time it tends to be a blacksmith's knife, so I decided to put an antler handle on mine, uh, just to be stupid. I've been thinking of taking that challenge. Yeah, it came out alright, I was pretty happy with it. And um, uh, on top of that, I've been working on some fabrication, making a swage block stand, um, because I need it, I need the swage block for the next project, or one of the next projects that I'm working on, which is going to be remaining a mystery, but yeah, next week's video uh, on my channel will be building my swage block stand, uh, made it pretty hardcore out of some, uh, scrap that I had lying around. Pretty hefty. <laughs> oh, it's it's huge. It's uh, it's it's quite quite a beast, and uh, it definitely takes a pounding. We uh, we tried it out today with my uh, striker, so I know that it it'll hold up. But yeah, it's been really hot over here, so I've been you know <laughs> sweating it hard uh, working in the forge. But it's been good fun, and I'm looking forward to this weekend where I'll be uh, going to a bloomery smelt. Well, actually, it's technically hearth steel we're going to be making. Um, but uh, basically, we're going to be smelting um, shop floor sweepings into a bloom uh, mixed with a little bit of meteorite and stuff like that that a friend of mine has collected, and we're going to be making a, a half-steel bloom um, I've been hanging out to see this for so long. Yeah, so um, I'll, be, I'll probably be live-streaming some of the event, uh, probably the, the towards the end of the event when we remove the bloom from the from the half, and um, I, I plan on videoing a bunch of it and, and putting it into a YouTube video as well, so there'll be that to look forward to as well. So, um, while, while I've been doing that, I've been checking out Instagram and, uh, you know, obviously keeping a track of all of my uh, peers, and I've noticed that Nils has been doing some pretty awesome stuff with uh, his axes yes. and stuff like that, and I'd like him to tell us about what he's been doing. So what have you been up to, Ooh. Nils? Well, uh, well, I have been working on axes. That's it, basically. Beautiful. Access. No, yeah. Well, basically, <laughs> I um, I got a lot of 
good people in around the world that's making beautiful axes, and I got so inspired by that. And also, uh, this guy uh, who lives pretty close to us, actually, he's a friend uh, of uh, my brother and my father and me as well. And uh, he wanted an axe uh, for his family so that he could yep. uh, pass it on to his son and uh, stuff like that. And uh, so I basically made a... Uh, Viking axe for him because I thought that was what he wanted, but that's not what he wanted. <laughs> so I had, to make, I had to make a new axe for him, and he wanted a regular uh, axe, you know, a normal. Uh, what do you say? Wood I don't know what axe. to say in woodcutting axe. You say that in yeah, English? Yeah, it's a, a woodcutter's axe. Bushcraft yeah. or a woodsman's axe. Yeah, you know, uh, you need some wood for the fireplace. You go out and do it so yeah just a normal axe uh so and i had never made a normal axe before so uh i basically started looking around and i looked at leon hoffman i watched uh, um, toronto blacksmith i watched grand's first brook uh, hulta fors whose kvarna don't make axes but uh, you know um around the i watched the ones that i really admire and appreciate and uh, I basically started my own billets, and uh, I really focused on, as we spoke of earlier, Sam, I really focused on making it uh, functional. Yeah. So, so uh, and also I wanted to, also the handle to, uh, to have something special. Uh, so I, it doesn't show very well in the pictures, but uh, uh, up, if you go close to the head and you gra- 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 grab it, uh, it's actually octagonal, right. but but at the bottom or what you say, the furthest away from the head, it's rounded, yep. oval, rounded. Cool. So um, and I really like that uh, approach. I think I got inspired from a Wrangler Star video, actually. Ah, uh, fair enough. Uh, so. is, uh, was that the um, Norland double bit axe that he did, the little hatchet? I have no idea. He had a <laughs> he had a friend on, and the friend uh, had a like a, a really nice axe, and he had modified it with an octagonal handle, and yeah. uh, I so that's where I got the inspiration from that. So all cred to Wrangler Star, uh, and uh, so basically that's what I'm doing. And uh, I also worked on the sword a little bit, uh, straightening out the warp, and. Um, yeah, it's probably going to be a video in the next couple of weeks, uh, finishing out the hardening and stuff like that, and then I'll start on the um, the other stuff on the sword. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's just, uh, you know, it's fun forging a sword, but it's not so fun grinding a sword, in my opinion. It's And it's also fun <laughs> making everything else, but the grinding part and the heat treating part is not fun, in my opinion. Uh, it's just uh, horrible because everything can go wrong. So, so can, you're just can be out. very tedious, yeah. Yeah, so that's it. And uh, I also got uh, two more orders for Viking Axis. And I'm going to tell you about that now that I didn't tell you earlier, Sam. That uh, there's a yeah. person in Denmark who wants a Dane Axe. And I have never made Dane Axis before. And uh, I, uh, I told him, you should go check out Thor's Forge because he makes the best ones in Sweden, probably. Uh, but uh, he wanted to try the little guy and that's me so uh, well I'm pretty big but uh, compared to (laughs) Thor I'm pretty small Uh, so um, so I'm gonna try it but if it doesn't work out I'm still gonna 
tell him to go to Thor because he's probably the best. Uh, but th- then I got a normal bearded axe, and I think my bearded, bearded axes are coming out pretty cool as well. So I'm confident yeah, looking, on those. Looking nice, man. Looking nice. So that's basically it, man. Uh, a lot of work to do. A lot of time spent in the forge, which, uh, you know, leads us into tool time. Yeah. And for tool time this week, uh, we are going to talk about a very essential tool, <laughs> if you may. <laughs> one of the most essential well, the most essential for a blacksmith yeah so uh, we're going to talk about the forge ah uh, yes the forge in ignis veritas exactly. in ignis vitae so uh, the, maybe we should start out by uh, telling uh, the listeners of what, uh, what we started out with, uh, with, uh, with forging Sam how did you start out uh, and what kind of well, forge act- did you have? We actually covered this in our first episode when we talked about how we got started out with blacksmithing. Maybe yeah, we should talk about true. what we actually use now. Well, mm. we also got new listeners that haven't heard the first episode, so... And they should absolutely go back and listen to our <laughs> entire library. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely true. They should go back and listen. Um, I mean, funnily enough, I still use the forge that I first used. Um, <laughs> so... It kind of fits in both categories, I suppose. Um, I When I first got into it, I kind of fell... I, I don't do things by halves. So I decided that if I was going to, you know, start a blacksmithing, I needed to build the biggest and meanest forge I possibly could. So I decided to build a, an entire forge table on a, on a moving um, trolley kind of platform. Um, and made a, a quite a large forge pot, fire pot for a, a charcoal forge, and did the whole tea piece twear with um, you know the opening flange at the bottom and you know the the side blast and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I went full out and um, I played with it for quite a while. And and as I said, I still use it for when I'm forge welding and stuff like that because it's got a nice deep fire pot and a bottom blast. Um, air blast so that I don't have to worry about um, don't have to worry about build up of charcoal in other words in you know otherwise I use another charcoal with two charcoal forges um, two other charcoal forges I have a side blast pan forge which I made out of a uh, an old um, plow disc and I use that in my most recent video on um, tips for blacksmith and beginners um, showing how blast? you can use it is side blast yeah so the um, basically the pipe that the blower runs through is welded across the top of the pan and simply blasts from the side into the fire um, it's kind of based on one of the simplest designs you can possibly have which is literally just a pipe pointing and a pile of charcoal mm. uh, <laughs> uh, but it works really well I, I really like it uh, it does have a hole underneath it and a, and an ash trap for um, you know ash building up um, but that's mostly to keep it out of the way of the blower. Mm. Um, and I also have a channel forge, a side blast channel forge. Uh, I do like my side blast forges, um, uh, which I based off of the Japanese Fuego. Uh, although I don't have a Fuego blower, uh, like blower, Fuego bellows. Um, but yeah, it's just basically a, a U-shaped channel filled with Satanite and uh, using a hairdryer to um, run my charcoal. And otherwise, I have two gas forges, uh, a big one and a little one, and they both run off Gamaco 
Burners from Gamico Artisan Supplies in Australia. Uh, they now ship worldwide. Um, Dan Moss, Alex Steele, all those guys use Gamico Burners. Um, and it runs off uh, LPG, or you know, liquid petroleum gas, or propane. And uh, those are the ones I use the most often because they're clean and they're easy to maintain and I don't have to worry about controlling my, you know, the the charcoal pile or, you know, constantly loading more charcoal or worrying about burning my pieces in half. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but uh, 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 I mean, uh, for one that's uh, thinking about getting a propane forge, which I am, uh, we got yep. builders in Sweden that makes them. And uh, also you can order from uh, Beckma in uh, Germany. I think. Yep. Uh, and they're very good and, and cheap, to be honest. But uh, for those who are thinking about building their own, you can watch uh, YouTube videos on that. But uh, getting those uh, burners, uh, I mean, what kind of price are you expecting? Uh, could you expect when buying a burner from your company there in Australia? Buying directly from Gamico, they charge $120 uh, Australian for a small burner which comes with the hose and the high pressure regulator so you don't have to buy any of the gas fittings um and i think for the large burner it's 240 dollars. so you can't quote me on that it might be 250 hmm. um but they're relatively inexpensive like in the in the scheme of things they're, they're completely kitted out with the high pressure regulator they come completely ready to go plug and play uh the only downside would be the shipping um you know, for, for inter- overseas uh, buyers, it would probably be fairly expensive. Any of the, any of you listening in the US, I'm not sure if Alex Steele is still selling his burners, but he might still be selling his burners, and his burners are Gamaco burners. He orders them from the States. Uh, he orders them from Australia and to the States. Um, and Sam Fowler, who used to work with Alex Steele in the UK, I believe still runs his forge burner. He does, yeah. Yeah, so it's forgeburners.com. Um, and I think if you're ordering from Sweden or Denmark or any anywhere in Europe, I think it would be best to go to forgeburners.com and buy them from Sam Fowler um, because he's based in the UK and the shipping will be a lot less. And it's exactly the same burner. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, but... They're uh, incredibly effective. They're an incredibly effective your forges, burner. Nils? Well, I have uh, two, uh, basically. Uh, well, I have three, but I built them all myself. Uh, I guess uh, the one that I'm using right now is uh, basically kind of like Sam's first one, I think. A really big table that I uh, welded up uh, by myself. It's rusty as as it could ever be, but I I like that, uh, you know, it's it's a, what could it be, a five millimeters uh, thick plate, and uh, I welded legs and uh, stuff to it, and I also made the uh what what's it called the the fire pot um i welded up that mm-hmm. as well and i made that uh, you know the same mechanics that uh, sam has on his you can open the the, the ash dump the ash dump yep. and uh yeah a tea uh, thing so it's uh, it's very good i'm impressed uh, that it worked uh, so uh thanks to everyone that got inspired me uh for that <laughs> yes yeah, but i mean it's, a, it's, it's very simple but a very good forge yeah, build but, but i mean it runs off of a hairdryer still <laughs> the same one that i have used for all my forgers so nothing nothing wrong with that honestly hair dryers are the cheapest and easiest forge blowers out there yeah uh so I'm... many so many people get pent up on buying like actual forge blowers or um you know they use like bouncy castle blowers and stuff like that but realistically i spent 20 dollars on a hair dryer it lasts me a year 
Uh, whereas a forge blower might last me three years, but it costs me 200 bucks. So realistically, I'm not saving any money. Yeah, my my hairdryer cost me $10, and it's been working for two years straight now. I've been worried that it's going to break any day now, but it, it doesn't. So uh, I'm, it's probably the best hairdryer out there. But... Um, you should buy uh, yeah. a replacement and just keep it in the keep it in the cupboard. Yeah, of uh, course. You know, because when it breaks down, the last thing you want to do is have to lose an entire day of forging because you have to go get a new hairdryer. Yeah, you're right. I should do that. I, I have I have my manual hand crank, so I don't worry about it. But uh, back when I didn't have that, I um I kept my I, I kept a spare hairdryer in my in my um storage closet. So basically, the other two that I have is like uh, the the act- the first one that I ever built was from an old uh, you know grill. The, you don't say grill in English. What do you say? Yeah, uh, yeah, grill. grill. You say grill. Barbecue. The, barbecue. Yeah, barbecue thing. Um, so I just uh, put a, a um, um, pipe into it uh, and, uh, that blows from the side and made a little po- uh, pot with cat sand and no- regular sand. And uh, it worked, but then I realized that I wanted to make swords, so I made uh, a, a really big one. I talked about it in the first episode, just a long pipe with a lot of holes in it that extends to the hairdryer, basically. Uh, yeah. I can take a photo of it someday. But I, uh, I actually, um, it's been sitting in the backyard for like uh, over a year, but I actually uh, t- took it up again and refilled it with sand and stuff, so I'm going to use that for quenching the sword uh, in the upcoming w- videos here, so... Uh, Cool. Looking forward to show you that. So that's basically it. But I'm thinking about uh, buying a, a propane forge for uh, for uh, my axe making because uh, it's a bit tricky uh, having the axe in the fire pot. It doesn't uh, get uh, heated where I want it uh, all, all the time. And I, sometimes I want everything to be heated so I can work uh, more of it in the same heat and not yeah, just pro- a particular part of it. Yeah, propane forges are definitely have advantages over charcoal or coal forges. But then charcoal and coal forges have certain advantages over propane or gas forges as well. So it does depend on what kind of work you're doing and, you know, what you have access to. I have a question about that, actually. We'll go into Alex Forge in a little, little bit, but I need to ask you when I have it in my mind. I was thinking about the the forge welding part, because I know forge welding in a charcoal forge, for example, is... Uh, pretty darn good because you can uh, control you can which higher heat. yeah that uh, that's one thing but you can also uh, control exactly what part of the steel that's going to be heated so you don't heat everything up but uh, how's mm. forge welding in uh, in a propane forge because if you watch Alex Steel for example that's all he does he never uses the the coal forge nowadays so no he hates them he actually did a video on how he has <laughs> he's like two burners at once yeah and I mean Alec actually did a, uh, a video on how much he hates coal forges um, oh man, because... that video. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, Joey Vandersteeg has done the same thing. He doesn't particularly like coal forges either, although that's all he uses. He doesn't use propane. Uh, but that's because he's a traditionalist. Um, a diehard traditionalist, some would say. But okay. um, yeah, the, the big thing is, is that um, forge welding in a, in, a, in a gas forge is a little different to forge welding in a charcoal forge. As you say, you can't really isolate heat to a specific portion. Um, so, you know, when you're welding a, you know, even if you're welding just the edge of, a, of an axe or something like that, you, you can't avoid, you know, heating up most of the axe. But that actually has an advantage in that you don't lose heat out of the welding zone as fast as you would if you only heated the edge. 
True. Because there's not amount of, there's no cold material attached to the hot material. Awesome. Um, most of the time when you're talking about welding in a charcoal forge, a lot of the professional blacksmiths will tell you to take what's called a long heat, which is to heat back from your welding area quite a long way in order to continue, like to have some thermal mass in the welding area. So you don't lose heat faster, which means that you can make the weld faster. Um, okay. You know, you're less less likely to lose the weld, uh, the welding heat, if you have a large section of material heated up. Um, yeah. Than instead, if you, just you get have a short... instead you get two seconds to work with instead of half a second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah, but of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's that's kind of the thing that with the uh, when you're welding an axe that I have a lot of experience with doing nowadays. Uh, because yep. what you are afraid of is that the high carbon piece is going to be overheated because it needs so basically turning it the piece around and heating up the the eye portion first that is the fattest will probably help with that a lot well yeah so so with a charcoal forge that is a good way to go um, is to heat up the back end first and then heat up your edge uh, and obviously keep it moving in the in the fire until it gets to that welding temperature um, but in a pro, in a propane or a gas forge, one of the other advantages, other than the fact that it heats a large area, is the fact that it's almost physically impossible to burn your steel. Okay. Um, you can carburize your steel, like decarburize really badly, uh, mm. if you're running a really oxygenated flame, and that that comes down to learning how to tune your forge, tune your gas forge. Um, so you know, learning to tune between the air and the propane mix and the pressure and all that kind of stuff. You can really get it dialed in, and I, when I'm welding in my uh, gas forges, I use a neutral fire or a or a, a slightly rich fire, where it's more propane than oxygen, which means that there's no oxidization happening inside the forge, and that way I don't lose any carbon, and I also don't get any scale, or I don't get as much scale buildup on my piece, which means that it welds a lot easier. The other thing is, is that um, even in the most efficient of forges. Most of the time, unless you leave it for quite a long time, you're not going to start melting the steel. Uh, although I have seen it happen. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alex, uh, your forge is... Uh, what I see from the videos, it's... Uh, a lot of it is wood, right? The... Oh, just the frame that it sits on. The, the oh. actual forge is entirely metal. So, so how, wh why the wood? Well, the wood is nice and... Uh cheap and readily available and i'm half a carpenter so I, I love to make things out of wood and it it fits the decor of my shop very well so um i also uh, what you can't really see is the entire underside of the forge where it is wood has had a shaosugiban finish on it which means that it's it's essentially fireproof okay and uh i, I have really tested that some days mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's like, amazing hey, what you can that, get away with. I know it's a coal forge, but it shouldn't be smoking that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But sure. uh, my forge is quite small because um, largely I do jewellery. I'm actually upgrading my forge in the very near future to a, uh, a full-size fire pot, which is going to be about 30 centimetres square, uh, which should be quite nice. Um, the inside angle of my forges, I always make my own uh, refractory cement to actually uh, put in there um, and I've always used what we lovingly refer to in Australia as termite mound um, refractory cement which is essentially a 50-50 by weight uh, ratio of plaster of Paris and fine sand mixed together with water um, it's not uh, particularly durable 
it, it, it tends to start forming stress fractures over time, but it's so cheap to produce. And if you actually form it correctly to begin with, it lasts a very long time. Um, it sort of it reminds me of um, if you've ever heard the story of Roman concrete before. Now, the ancient Romans were able to build these huge, massive structures with seemingly amazing concrete technology, but no steel rebar because they didn't actually have reinforcement bar back then. They just used physics to actually hold the buildings together, um, complementary forces. And you can do the same thing with any sort of weak cement, including refractory cement. Um, and doing an angled side to a fire pipe, for example, um, having an angle that's not too steep allows it to have incredible structural strength. And I have never, in the years that I've been running that forge, never actually had to replace the, the lining. And um, my old gas forge um, is in pieces. I'm building a, a new gas forge, which I, I don't like using gas forges. I, it's, I, I prefer them for heat treatment because they're fantastic for heat treatment. Um, but... Uh, mine's mine's been in pieces for so long now that I've just been I've gotten used to using my coal forge for for doing heat treatment. Um, but I am still uh, going to finish it one day. It's a, <laughs> it's a old air compressor cylinder that I actually uh, cut a an opening on and and filling the inside with a very specific arrangement of termite mound filling. Um, termite mound is actually also very good at holding heat. Um, in your forge when you do it. it it doesn't bleed it out as much as some other things however i've, I've recently found um you can make quite an effective uh, fire brick mixture with a, a 7724 mix of perlite vermiculite cement and sand so that's very cheap and and widely available stuff that you can just get at a local hardware store but uh, i watched a video where somebody actually made this up and used it and they used it on a um a casting furnace and they had a crucible in there and they showed them dropping chunks of brass into this crucible and they were just liquefying. And they had a temperature probe in there, it was about 3,000 degrees. And they, the whole thing was lined with these fire bricks made from this homemade mixture. And he took off his glove and placed his bare hand on top of the, the brick and was able to hold it there. And that's some, that's some pretty good in, insulation properties to be able to do that on a, on a smelting furnace. Hmm. Yeah, that's, so a, that's this, a hell of this, an insulator. Yeah, that brick was probably only about four inches thick. Mm. So I was pretty yeah, impressed really, by that. And I'm we were talking about that. It. We were talking about that like a week ago, and uh, I'm really interested to get that, um, that get that mix and try it out for myself. It'll be uh, really interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for uh, I'll, I'll hit you up another time when you can actually write it down, Sam. But for anybody listening at home, it's it's perlite, vermiculite, cement, and sand mixed in a 7724 ratio. So you can make as much or as little as you, little as you want, so long as it's a 7724 ratio. You mix them together dry, and then you just keep adding water until it's sort of the consistency of a runny peanut butter, and then just let it air dry. And once it's air dry, give it a bake by turning the forge on for a while and really bake out the remaining moisture. Some people have actually mixed in steel wool in amongst it to act as a sort of a bonding agent. But once again, like I said, if you understand the physics of how complementary forces play, you shouldn't need to do that at all. Uh, stress fractures occur in, in refractory materials when you haven't taken into account the shape that you are trying to build. You know, arches create natural strong shapes, for example. So if you just had a big flat top to your forge, if a crack forms in the middle of that, it's going to fall in on itself. An arch won't. 
So um, think think of things like that. I mean, I'm not going to get into the deep physics of, of uh, complementary <laughs> pressures of, of construction ad- adhesives on the podcast, but I mean, I, I nerd out about this stuff. But um, my my yeah, for, little for more info, check out nothing. Valhalla Ironworks on Facebook, on um, YouTube. Yeah, that's right. Maybe I'll do a video <laughs> on it if I try making that refractory cement and then really put it to the test and see how hot I can get one yeah, side of it, it while the other side awesome. well until I can't touch it. <laughs> see how hot I can bring it up because as you guys have just been saying, if you are used to using a coal forge, even a charcoal forge that's air blown, you can get that smoking hot. You can melt steel down in that thing. And anybody that's used a coal forge has lost a lot of pieces by taking their eyes off it from five <laughs> seconds at the wrong time mm. to, to know exactly how hot that can get. So if this refractory can stand up to a fully air-blown coal forge, then I'll be a very happy chappy, to be honest, especially given the price of fire bricks. Because a lot of people say, mm. just go buy fire bricks, but they are expensive. And then if you yeah, go and absolutely. crack one then and that's on you, you're going to feel like garbage. So if you can actually just... Have, you buy this these materials literally in sacks of 20 kilos each. If you just have those four sacks in your garage, you can just go and make more fire bricks. It takes an afternoon and you've got as much fire brick as you want. Yeah, so that's awesome, man. That, that's, that's, um, it's, it's like I was saying when Roy was on, you, under, you start learning the why behind things and it gives you so much more power and control. Yeah, sure. about that uh, leaving your eyes off the forge... Uh, if you go back, way back on my Instagram page for over a year ago when I started making my first axis, you can actually see where I, uh, a picture where I uh, forgot the piece in the... I was uh, going to forge weld in the end bit to my axe and <laughs> everything melted. Mm. Yep. Uh, was, yeah. <laughs> it's so, always a yeah. sad moment. And actually this um, uh, Mank Tank challenge that's been going around, somehow it... It um, evolved into people reaching down inside their mank tanks and pulling things out. And a lot of people throw those, um, the failed projects into their water bucket. And yeah. so people are pulling out those old burnt axe heads and spades and, and projects that they just, they burnt holes in and then they just threw it out in a fit of rage. And it's kind of sad seeing that little graveyard of things that have happened just because people burnt their steel. Yeah. And then you get people pulling long swords out of them, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. uh, Kaylin at Ouroboros Forge. She pulled an entire longsword out of her bucket. It was fantastic. Used a little bit um, CGI trickery to make that happen, and I, I, I respect the game. Oh, yeah, it's great. Loved it. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, as as you guys probably guessed, I'm, I'm a bit of a forge nerd. I have quite a few and plan on building more. <laughs> You know, people, you know, like, oh, you've got a forge? And I'm like, yeah, seven. <laughs> so, yeah. They're like, what do you need seven forges for? And I'm like, all different sorts of things. <laughs> I'm you know, super excited about getting my new fire pot. I'm, I'm just absolutely just fanging for it because I've got oh. the same thing that you were describing, Nils, where I, I, I fabricated <clears throat> my current one just out of scrap steel and it's got the ash dump on the bottom and uh, airflow controlling in the inlet on the side and... It, it works great, but it's just too small, and it's because all of my work has been jewellery. However, lately I've been getting more and more commissions for knives, bigger knives, uh, getting commissions for things. I've actually got a commission now to do a set of bars for all of the windows in a house, and they want nice. ornamental bars. So um, that that's going to be, you know, having a, a, a 30 by, like a foot by foot fire pot is going <laughs> to be just brilliant. It's going to be fantastic. I won't know myself. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, talking about uh, working, you know, large stock, uh, I can't give away too much because I, I want to keep it as a surprise for my channel. But uh, today I was working with a six kilo piece of steel in my forge, so um, you know, lots of lots of fun there. That's uh, what Sam calls his right bicep. Yeah, that's it. Six kilos of steel. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, no, funnily enough, uh, it was leading into another topic about um, the differences between propane and, and charcoal forges. One of the things that I do notice quite a bit in my propane forge that I don't get in the charcoal forge is because you can get such short heats in a charcoal forge, when you're working small material, it's a lot easier to do, you know, your, your detail work. Um, in a propane forge, because, you know, like in my propane forge, I, I have an option of heating... Anywhere up to six inch, anywhere up to I think it's eight inches long, or nothing. <laughs> you know, like so I, I, I can't heat the middle of a bar. I have to heat the whole bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So with it, if if you have a good um, enough coal forge, I mean, you see um, John Switzer at Black Bear Forge doing it. You can literally just pour water directly onto your forge and yeah. isolate where you want the heat to come through. It's fantastic the level of control you have. It's just, that's especially true with coal, not so much with charcoal. If you're trying that with charcoal, you're no. going to get showered in hot ash. So please, <laughs> yeah. anyone who's Broken using a charcoal forge at home, it. do not pour water into your charcoal forge. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I mean, one, of, one of the things uh, about the forges in Sweden is that, uh, that I have uh, um, seen, at least, is that for the little guy that doesn't have a company, uh, in Sweden, it's a very big thing if, because if you want to order stuff, uh, you can uh, get a reduced price if you have your own company, basically, in Texas, that is. But if you don't have that, it's a little bit trickier to uh, order stuff and you have to pay a lot more taxes. So uh, uh, go, uh, getting coal uh, in Sweden is uh, not... It, well, there are suppliers, but... Uh, it could. It's a lot more tricky than getting charcoal, if I say yeah. say it like that. So, oh, it's, just, it's the same here in Australia. Like even in coal country, where uh, like Valhalla Ironworks, right at the moment, Alex he lives in Queensland, which is the main producer of um, steel grade coal in Australia. And even yeah. there, he'll he'll tell you it's almost impossible to get a hold of. The the closest place to me that sells anthracite and coke is about a four and a half hour drive west. <laughs> Oh, and even even then, you can maybe buy a twenty kilo sack. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I uh, there is a company, uh, the same company that sells the Beckma forages in uh, Germany. They have sheep uh, coal. Uh, I mean, twenty five kilos for uh, what is it, twenty dollars or something? It's okay. Oh wow! Uh, uh, but uh, but um, and also, I used to order that from uh, Denmark, uh, who who supplied me with steel earlier, uh, but. Um, since um, since they did, they just stopped uh, um, supplying the coal nowadays, so I can't order it anymore. Yeah. But there is a guy in northern Sweden who's a po from Poland, and uh, he has his ways around. Uh, he's famous. <laughs> he's famous in all the groups in Sweden because he he sells his stuff uh, pretty cheap uh, most of the times. So he has anvils, forges, and he goes around all of Sweden supplying blacksmiths with stuff. So I'm in in touch with him. So I'm gonna actually gonna try out his coal and see if it's okay. Cool. It does raise a valid point, actually. Sam was making fun of himself with a bit of self-deprecating humor that he's a forge nerd before. 
But to be honest, um, all of this discussion about the different, like the differences between coal or charcoal or coke or anthracite, um, it really does highlight a point, especially with what you were talking about with getting the different types of heats that you want to do. It's if you actually sort of take the time to to learn how the fire works, how the the heating of steel works, it really gives you more freedom to just work with any type of fuel that you have available. So, Absolutely. like Nils, you were saying that charcoal you can get anywhere. It's bloody easy to get. Um, and the same with propane forges. Those LPG cylinders you can get at any service station in Australia. I'm sure it's the same elsewhere in the world as well yeah. because people use exactly the same gas for their barbecues. But if you're understanding how the steel is heating up and what's actually happening on a small level, um, you can really make control, uh, take control of your forge and, and use it to do whatever you need it to do if you just understand what's going on. And a lot of people just sort of think, I turn on the forge, I stick the steel and it gets hot. And that's as far as they go. And it's it's really not enough if you want to actually really up your skills as a blacksmith. Absolutely. I mean, the controlling the heat is, is one of the most fundamental uh, kind of uh, skills that a blacksmith needs to learn. Um, yeah. You know, in, in, no matter what forge you're using. Understanding the creation of a reducing fire and, and such. Exactly. And I mean, the big thing is, is, I mean, my perfect example is always uh, when I went to Queensland to stay with my uncle for a couple of weeks, helping him build his house. Uh, I got itchy. I got itchy hammer hand and wanted to make some uh, mm -hmm. some knives again. And um, unfortunately, the gas forge he had was falling apart and didn't work. So I decided in a day to build a, uh, a charcoal forge, much like the, the pan forge I have here out of a plowshare. I built that one out of a plowshare as well. Uh, unfortunately, I got to the end of building it and I kind of went, ooh, what do I fire this with? Because there was literally no supplier of charcoal, no supplier of coal anywhere in like a 500-kilometer racist. Well, at the end of the day, I just used hardwood. Um, he had a, he yeah. had a hardwood fire um, in his house, so I just cut up kindling and, and just did a wood-fired forge. Now, it didn't get up to the It'll same work. heat. Yeah, it didn't get up to the same heat as my coal forge did or my charcoal forge or my gas forge. But I forged out four blades over the space of three weeks, and, you know, it's a perfectly viable method um, as long as you understand how to control heat and how, yeah. you know, fires work. So I mean, We the, are the truly big... the masters of flame. That's it. I mean, and the, the big thing, the, the, one of the things I was coming back to with the, the propane forge versus charcoal or um, coal forges and the, the shortness of the heats is oxidization of the material. Um with a propane forge or a gas forge, one of the things you'll find is if you're working a very small area of stock and heating a very large area of stock is that you're going to lose a lot of material to scale that you're not working on. Uh, and it's something that I keep telling people who get into forging swords and stuff like that is that they t tend to think that you need to heat a foot and a half you know, or two <laughs> foot of length of the sword every time you put it in the forge. No, no. But realistically, you can only work like six inches at a time, effectively. That's all you should be working on, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, it gives you better focus. Yeah, just watch my latest videos. I do that there. And I, when I bevel, I, I, I don't want to have it too hot when I bevel either, because... Mm. Uh, first, I don't want to risk overheating the steel and losing uh, carbon. And uh, the second one, beveling is such a precise work and we're getting into this now on the topic of the week actually we've been talking a lot of the tool of the week here but we're going into <laughs> we the have. we're going into the topic of the week like it or not but uh, 
when working, so the topic of the week, we should probably <laughs> present it and then I'll keep on talking then. So the topic of the week is ornamental work. Ornamentation, yes. Yeah, details. Yeah, so specifically for blades. Yeah, finishing. Or, or weaponry. Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, I mean, beveling a sword isn't probably a, a finishing thing because you usually do that on the grinder, but it's pro you could say that it's a finishing uh, of the forging process going into the, the grinding process. Absolutely. I mean, it, you, you definitely, uh, it's definitely a finish forging process. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so it's the finish of, of a phase of forging. And it definitely requires the most skill and patience. Yes. Um, it's not something not something you can just go at like a bull at a gate. You can't really uh, start swinging like a farrier and um, <laughs> and bevel the blade <laughs> accurately. Uh, no. I know because I've tried. <laughs> I mean, uh, as we said, uh, a, th a thing that I, I, I'm always trying to do is... Because, I mean, if you watch uh, people on YouTube, they everyone does it differently. But I, I try to keep the temperature as low as possible because I don't want to move too much accidentally. So, And I'm not a pro at that at, at all. It's not the thing that I'm good at. I suppose beveling is kind of like heavy planishing. <laughs> it is. And, I mean, you, you do planish. You do planish as kind of part of beveling as well. Or at least you should be. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it is it definitely it's one of the most difficult skills to pick up uh, and do accurately. And it's something that I get asked about a lot because I've put a lot of time into practicing my bevels to the point that I can forge them pretty much to finish on the anvil. Um, you know, not trying to brag or anything like that. It's just purely a matter of practice. Yeah. I guarantee that I'm not as good now as I was, you know, six months ago when I was working on my first sword is because I've been doing a lot of hammering back then, but I've recently been doing a lot of finish work and my hammer hand isn't quite as good. But, um, I mean, even my most recent video, the one-hour knife, I forged that down to um, less than a millimeter thickness at the edge um, so that I could basically just put an edge on it straight out of the forge because I needed to save time. Mm. And uh, it's very true that uh, five minutes in the forge is half an hour at the grinder. Very much so. And, I mean, it's the same thing doing an axe, for example. Uh, I, I usually make it... Nowadays, I usually try to make it super thin along the edge because I'm... Anyways, I'm always going to cut off that piece uh, mm. to make it more, you know, rounder and the shape that I really wanted in the profile. Uh, but I try to keep it uh, to get the, the, the sh I mean, the edge of an axe, it depends on what kind of axe it is, but you usually want it to be, let's see here now, is it convex or? Yeah, no, convex. apple seed grind. Yeah, apple seed. Or a seed grind. Yeah. That's usually how I want them, at least. So I try to forge that in a little bit so that... Uh, and it, also, it's about drawing out the material as much as possible. possible because Absolutely. For finishing because... an axe, for example... Uh, sorry, do you want mm. to say something? No, I was, I, you know, the, the old adage that forge it thick, grind it thin is fine, but um, what you believe is thick and what is actually thick is two very different things. Cause, uh, That's what, what she said. <laughs> what what looks I, I've always found that what looks thin when you're forging it turns out to be very thick when it cools down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's because you can't get too close to it. But yeah, I've I've forged blades that I thought were like really really fine, and then I've pulled them out of the forge later, and they're three mil thick at the edge, and I kind of go, oh my god, this thing's a monster. 
Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's it's also for for example, my axis. I I don't want uh, a grinded finish on the on the axe head. I really like the sure. forged finish, and I like all mm. my uh, hits to show basically. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I, because if you watch it closely, you can see the process of drawing out the everything, you know. So in some, I'm the same. Yeah, I mean, Bill's, close close Bill's to the character. eye, close to the eye. There's a lot of uh, hacky punches because it's because it's hard to get them uh, super flat but but I, I like that part of of it and it's the same on Hoffman's axis most of them as well so I think he likes that as well but um, mm. uh, sometimes at least in the beginning when you start forging axes for example it's very hard to get them uh, thin so you usually leave them way too fat uh, around the eye and uh, close to the eye, uh, and that's uh, not so good because you want it uh, to have a to be thin. And uh, uh, so, what you could do if you uh, forge it too thick, you can grind that down and make it perfect. But then again, then you get the grinded finish, and I don't like the grinded finish, and I don't want to grind it and then go back to the forge, heat it up, and you know, hit it a couple of times just to make it look <laughs> forged because then it's just not real, you know. It's uh, it's yeah. one of those things. Just keep on working on that technique, and you'll you'll get it down. It's just just muscle memory. I mean, oh, I, I, I do, I, I do now. I'm just saying that I've, you could do it that way. For sure, yeah. I mean, I've followed um, I followed Murray Carter for quite a long time. He's a 17th generation Yoshimoto bladesmith who also happens to be a white Canadian, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's also a master smith in the American Bladesmith Society. Uh, but, uh, a lot of his videos that he's done on YouTube and stuff like that are around kitchen knives, and one of the things that he likes to do is leave a forged finish on his Kuro Uchi, or Villager, uh, style kitchen knives, and one of his rules is always get it thinner. Um, you know, like, what, what you think is thin is not thin. Always get it thinner. And so that's, that's something that drilled into my brain early in my, uh, bladesmithing career, and it's been something I've always been, uh, striving for, is getting it thinner. People uh, tend to pick up the the big wedding buoy that I have, um, that I made. Uh, actually, I made the handle on it in my YouTube channel, but that was the one I used at my wedding to cut my wedding cake. A lot of people have picked that up and, and marveled at how light it is, because it's got a ten and a half inch long blade. Um, but it's it's actually fairly dainty, because it's got a 5mm thick spine, but it goes down... It's a flat grind across two and a three quarter inch wide blade down to mm. almost zero. It's down to, I think, 0.2 of a mil at the edge before the before yeah. the final grind. I mean, that goes down to what you were saying, actually, in a few episodes ago, Sam, about understanding volumes of starting material, because if you're working on something like a chef's knife that has to be quite... Like a Santoku knife, that you really want that to be thin. You want that yeah. to be very elegantly thin. And you should be able to do one of those out of something that's the size of, like, a bearing racer. Yeah, because it's really if you have started forging with the right amount of steel, accounting for loss, obviously through scale, etc. Um, you start with the right amount of steel. If it's not big enough yet, it's not thin enough. Well, that's it. I mean, and that comes down to axes as well. When you when you start working with axes or hammers, you know, I make a lot of hammers. I've made a few axes myself. Um, if you're starting off with, you know, say you want a a pound and a half axe. If you're starting off with four pounds of material, then you're not going to get a pound and a half axe. 
<laughs> you're going to get a three and a half pound axe. Um, That's right. So, I mean, you are going to lose some some material to scale and obviously to grinding. So you do need to start with a little bit extra, but you tend to over, like a lot of people tend to overestimate how much material mm-hmm. they're going to lose. You know, when it's I almost, started out, um, so- you know, when I started out, if I wanted to make a three pound hammer, I'd get a five pound billet. <laughs> yeah, same here, man. It's almost worth saying to people, if you're getting started out and you're actually having trouble with this, aim to make something smaller than you expect. So if you are somebody that you know know in yourself that you're going to get a five-pound billet to try and make a three-pound hammer, just go to what you think is too little. Get three and a half pounds and see what happens. And if you end up smaller, it's better to have just dived in balls first and actually end up with something smaller. Yeah. And yeah, get get a pair of scales. Uh, that you know, like any any blacksmith anywhere, get some shop scales, please. And you know, it, the the thing is, is that you know you might not use them all the time. But you know, for instance, if you want to start making knives, one of the really good things you can do is go find a knife that you like the weight of, and go and weigh it, and then work out how much of the weight of that knife is steel. And then go and use that amount of steel to make the same knife. Mm, mm. And pretty quickly, you'll find out how much steel you need to work with. And that's that's something that I've kind of done. Um, I kind of did it the opposite way in that I forged a bunch of knives, put handles on them, and then found out that I really liked that kind of weight and that kind of style. And then I kind of put them on the scale and figured out how much I'd used. Yeah, But... Uh- um, it, it, it goes for the same reason, you know, I, I, I now weigh all of my billets for hammers and stuff because people are order specific weights of hammer or specific weights of axe. And if I'm not weighing my billets, then I don't know if I'm going to be able to give them, you know, I, I could pick up a piece of steel and kind of go, oh, well, this, this feels like it weighs about three pounds, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to get a, a decent product out of that. Mm. So, yeah, definitely uh, learning to work with the weight of material is a good good idea. So uh, basically, back to finishing uh, products. Um, finishing, like I, not finishing products, but oh well, maybe. Uh, I bought a Dremel tool uh, a couple of years back. I thought yeah. that uh, I was going to sheet the engraving part and use that uh, as an engraver tool instead of uh, the traditional engravers. That didn't work out. Uh, mm. because, I mean, you can you can use a Dremel for engraving, but it's not yeah, the greatest. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, when you're engraving with a hammer and a engraver, uh, the thing is that you're punching forward, but with the Dremel tool, you're it's going round, so you get yeah, so you, different you finishes. Need to, yeah, you you definitely need to learn how to you know orient your hand. Uh, one of the big things that I struggled with with Dremels was I tended to try and draw straight lines by pulling the Dremel uh, across, uh, pulling the, tr- the Dremel down while it's rotating sideways. And so therefore, a lot of the time, I'd, I'd start going down the line and then it'd start wandering off or it would skip out of the, yeah. the line that I was doing <laughs> and just run across the surface. <laughs> and, you, and you get this, this nice across the across your work. So instead, you know, you orient your hand you know, sideways and, you know, go with the rotation of the, of the Dremel and take small pecks at it rather than trying to do one long line in one, ro- in one go. And a lot of that comes down to speed. Um, because the Dremel's not the f- that fast a rotating tool, unlike a Fordham or, um, or a micromotor, 
they're not really good for engraving because they don't have the speed to stop chatter. But I mean, the um, thing that you could use it for that's that it's very good for is uh, wood. Uh, carving out mm, yeah. uh, details in wood because when I did my dragon heads uh, ha- handles for my axis, uh, it was awesome. I just uh, draw the dragon with a pencil and then just basically go at it with the Dremel tool. Works perfect. The Dremel is an absolutely awesome wood carving tool. Um, I actually did a, a, li- a few live streams for um, uh, the Night Perth Knife Show. I was building a, a series of knives. Yes, can do. Yeah, the ski and do, which I sent off today actually to a customer. Um, it uh, I, I engraved a um, a thistle on the handle on both sides. I deep relief engraved it with a Dremel, and that came out really well. So um, yeah, Dremels are great for um, Dremel. Dremels are great for woodwork, and I have used them for metalwork, but I, I favor the uh, the hammer and chisel um, graving uh, style. I've been practicing it for a little while now. I've done a few videos on it on my channel. I've made gravers. I've made engraving hammers um, on my channel. Um, and I've even sent a set of gravers to Alex, who's been playing with them recently. Have you been having, how have you been finding them, Alex? Yeah. Um, well, because I, you know, it's having, I've been doing uh, wood engraving quite a, while, a long time using a rotary tool, actually, although I've got one with the um, extendable arm makes it a lot more easy to control. Yeah, I um, love mine. And having the right having the right bits helps. I've got quite an extensive library of bits, <laughs> uh, literally hundreds of different types, which helps. But for metal, I've found the same problem that you two were just talking about. It, it's a spinning tool. It's going to grab the metal and run with it, even on softer metals like brass and bronze. So um, Sam recently sent me a uh, set of gravers and um, it, it, it's actually kind of hypnotic. It's it's a it's a really satisfying thing to just sort of lose yourself in. You throw some music on and a little tap 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 tap, and it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I would recommend doing what I've done and start out with some of the softest metals you can find. Um, I've got some scrap aluminium. After that, I'm going to move into scrap brass. Um, after that, I'm going to go into bronze, and then I'll try mild steel, um, and uh, start uh, d- diving into ornamenting some of my hammers i think because when you have a pair of gravers in your hand you really start looking around thinking hmm what could <laughs> what be the- prettier <laughs> what can <laughs> i engrave on i i have that problem uh, where it, it's, every project it's needs engraving now and another thing you can actually do to really make it pop um, and if you don't follow him already i highly recommend uh looking up uri tukman on um on youtube he does the most phenomenal engraving work I've ever seen in my life. And he does it so casually and he makes it look very easy, but it's not. Um, but it, he's a, a huge inspiration to watch. But what he does, once he's actually done the engraving, is to put uh, an enamel paint over the top of it and then um, lightly sand the surface so it removes all of the enamel paint from the high spots, leaving the low spots dark. You yeah. often uses things like bl- black, and it really makes it pop, and the detail come out, and it's incredible. I think Alex Steele did that on his Viking sword, if I don't uh, remember. He did, well. yeah. I believe, yeah. actually, it was Yuri that um, mm-hmm. suggested that to him, I think. Yes, yeah, it was. Probably. And also another yeah. guy that's incredible at engraving. I know that you guys know who I'm thinking about. It's Ilya from That Works. His, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just out of this world. I don't even want to talk I about it. Seen He's him. too good, man. Uh, you should the definitely Ili- watch the the King Arthur sword they made in yeah, at Man at Arms. It's so insanely good. It's probably yeah, the best I mean, engraving I've seen. Probably. 
I'm, I imagine most of our listeners have heard of Man at Arms on YouTube, uh, run by the Ormi channel. Unfortunately, no longer exists because uh, Ormi shut down uh, when Defy Media crashed, but they do have quite an extensive library of making some ridiculously large swords. Uh, <laughs> they made uh, they made Guts's Berserker sword from um, Dragon Slayer Origins, I believe, and it was uh, I think it, it ended up weighing something like forty kilos or something like that. It was you know nine foot tall. It was an insane sword, but um, yeah, the uh, Excalibur sword that Niels was talking about um, was an awesome one. It was done for King of Avalon the game. Um, they actually made the sword that then became the sword in the game. And Ilya did some incredible engraving on that. And he, uh, he studied, uh, both Japanese engraving and European engraving. He uses a really interesting mix of the two. And I, I've actually taken quite a bit of inspiration from Ilya's work. So yeah, definitely check out That Works, uh, which is the channel that he, uh, Ilya and Matt Stagma from Baltimore Knife and Sword have started up, uh, in the wake of, uh, Man at Arms shutting down. Um, they definitely, they're doing some really cool stuff. They recently did a, uh, collaboration with Blackbeard Projects, uh, and they're currently doing a one for Scalagrim. Um, they're making a falchion for Scalagrim, so. Mm. Right. You'll be excited about that. I mean, I mean, Matt Stagmer, uh, he's like, I mean, he's, he gotta be a wizard at the grinder or something. He's so good at grinding. (laughs) I don't understand how it does it. It's his confidence. He, he, he spends, you know, he he literally spends uh, nine hours a day working for Baltimore Knife and Sword running a grinder. That's all he does. And that's all he has done for the last six, seven years at least. But yeah, he is a professional, he's a professional grinder. He, he, he is a master and it's awesome to watch. I mean, uh, we know. You, you ever watch Ilya work the uh, Nasel 2B uh, giant power hammer that they run, and that guy runs it like it's, uh, you know, like he's an engraver. He, he just runs it like it's uh, nothing. It's absolutely beautiful to watch. Yeah, so definitely check out those guys. They are incredible. So Yeah, for sure. I mean, we so, are running out of time, guys, uh, for today's I believe session. we're getting to the end of the show, yeah. Yeah. So next week we are uh, probably, if everything goes well, we are having a guest on, and we're to- we're, we're going to talk about some pretty interesting uh, stuff. Uh, Armor smithing, yay! We shouldn't say that, man. It's a well, mystery. You know, you need to give him something to look forward yeah. to. So if everything goes well, we're going to have an armor smith on, and he's going to talk about forging armor and. Uh, everything about that so we're going to pre- uh, prepare some questions for him and if you have some questions send them in but uh, then again it's going to be released after so never mind <laughs> don't do that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. i'm sure he'll actually have uh, some things to say on ornamentation as well because in armor smithing the metal plate is so thin that they don't use engraving as much they use repousse rep- rep- repousse Repasse, yeah, not good with the French pronunciation, <laughs> um, but it it's actually uh, creating the same effect by actually indenting relief into it rather than carving away. Mm. Um, yes. You see it on those old brass plates that every old person ever has hanging inexplicably <laughs> in their house. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, be, that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a really interesting episode, so be sure to hang a, hang around for that. And uh, we also have some more guests coming up, probably. So you oh, don't definitely want to miss that. we have some. Yeah, we definitely have some uh, more big, guests coming. Big up. guests coming. 
We've been having some talks with our our people. Have been talking to people. Yes, absolutely. Our people. Yes. So uh, thank you very much for uh, this week. And if you want to ask us a question or get a, in touch with us, uh, you should uh, send your email to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or go to the.forgecast on Instagram. You can write us a message there. And you can find me at uh, Nils Ogren on Instagram and Nils Ögren on YouTube. And you can find Sam at... Sam Towns Bladesmith on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find Alex at... I go by the name Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm trying to pick up the YouTube, so definitely follow me on YouTube. Yeah, and uh, we also started adding uh, links in the show notes. Uh, so if you mm. want uh, to just click it, you can do that in the show notes now nowadays. Uh, so, because we got a request from a listener who couldn't find us, so excellent. I I fixed that, David. I think your name was. Uh, so thanks for watching, David. Yeah, thanks. Uh, listening, David. So oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> thank you very much. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. See ya. Yep.